Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, folks. Big week this week. Public impeachment hearings begin on Wednesday with testimony from senior diplomats Bill Taylor and George Kent. On Friday, we'll hear from former Ukraine ambassador Masha Ivanovich. Meanwhile, it remains to be seen whether key witnesses will testify, including former National Security Advisor John Bolton and Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. On Saturday, Republicans released their own list of witnesses they'd like to hear from, including Hunter Biden and the whistleblower. According to reports, the defense strategy continues to evolve, with a shift towards arguing that Mulvaney, ambassador to EU Gordon Sondland, and Rudy Giuliani were freelancing on the Ukrainian policy, an attempt to distance the president from the pressure campaign. I talk about all this and more with Ann Milgram on the Cafe Insider podcast. Each week, we break down the news and take stock of what's happening. Today, we're making a clip from the most recent episode available in the Stay Tuned feed. To listen to our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. It's a good segue to start talking about what's coming up because there are two things going on here because this will be a public impeachment inquiry. One is the issue of what the substantive facts are. What did someone know? What meetings were they in? What statements were made? Etc. The other is how compelling a witness that they make. So I think on the issue, if this were a regular criminal case that we were doing to an ordinary jury of Americans, the absence of Bolton is not devastating because you have multiple other people who were in the room and can testify about what was said and corroborate the testimony of other people. So if Bolton said this thing about the drug deal with Giuliani and you have three other witnesses saying it, it's not the end of the world or the end of your case that you can't bring him in. This is not an ordinary criminal case that's going on you know, in a courtroom where there are no cameras cameras are going to be present. And as you said, the hearts and minds of the public are important and are part of the process. Public sentiment matters in connection with how an impeachment unfolds. So John Bolton is incredibly important to me, a little less because of the facts, a little more because of the gravitas he has. Um, and especially so if he shaves the mustache. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think he's going to shave the mustache. Remember, he, he, he didn't get the job at the beginning of the Trump administration. Because of the mustache. Because of the mustache. And then he got the job. And then that didn't last so long either. Um, but I think Bolton... Yes, you have John Bolton sitting alone at a table with the assembled committee members. And if he said the truth and he repeated the things that it looks like he was thinking and saying at the time the Ukraine thing was happening, that's a big deal yeah. and, and devastating to the president's cause and also maybe very influential perhaps with the senators who are going to be jurors in the case. Yes. Okay, so this week, just to, re- just to recap, all the requests that have been made by Trump's allies. First, you've got to have a full vote in the House. Done. 
then you got to release the transcripts of these behind closed doors depositions. Done. Or coming. Some of them right. are still coming. That's but true. yes, they're coming. But they're happening and there's, there's an understanding that they'll all be released, I believe. Yes. Have public hearings also done. Yes. Within a period of just a few weeks. So every, every process complaint pretty much has been handled and dealt with. And now people sound a little silly, I think, complaining about some of those things. And so what's happening this week? On Wednesday, the 13th, yep. we have Bill Taylor, top American diplomat in Ukraine. Yes. We have George Kent, also on Wednesday, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. And then on Friday, we have Marie Masha Ivanovich, the former ambassador to Ukraine, who was pushed out. What do you make of that lineup? Yeah, it's important that what they're doing, I think in many ways, Taylor comes across as as the most important witness in some ways because he tells the narrative from having been brought in after Maria Yovanovitch is pushed out as the ambassador. He's brought in as the senior most diplomat. He's involved in multiple conversations, and we can talk about them, multiple conversations with the ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland. He, at the time, has those text messages saying, like, what are we doing? Now we're conditioning foreign aid on um, investigations into political rivals, essentially. And what's really important, having reviewed some of his testimony, and I think there's two reasons why he's first. And we should pause for a second and say, you know, if you listen to sort of standard trial theory of how you try cases, you put your strongest evidence on at the beginning and the end, and you sort of put anything in the middle that's less important because of primacy and recency, how people remember things. I'm not sure that's exactly the case here, but I do think for the reasons you and I talked about, which is it's not just a standard trial, it's the American public watching. It's really important to start off with a good witness who's going to give a lot of information about what happened. And Taylor both has a lot of information, and it's clear from his testimony that the Republicans on the committee, while cross-examining him and questioning him, they were pushing a lot of different theories. And he was very strong and I think very articulate in saying, no, this is what happened. I'm telling you what it was, what happened at the time. And he really pushed back on them trying to characterize it in ways that he didn't agree with. So I think he'll be a strong witness. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I have some addendums to what you said. First, in my experience, when you're thinking about who your first witness should be in a regular trial, it's not just that it should be the most powerful witness, because sometimes so many people have bits of information that that's difficult to do. And so sometimes, and I think this is you know even more the case when you have a public proceeding like this that involves the need for public sentiment to be on your side, you have an overview witness. So sometimes at trial, you'd put on the FBI agent who could tell the whole story so that the jury will, will see, well, here's the whole narrative and then we'll fill in the particulars and the pieces along the way. And the second thing is you want to put on a witness who is not going to get demolished and destroyed on cross-examination. So you want a witness with not so much baggage. So sometimes that's you know a witness to a crime who doesn't have any liability on their own part. Sometimes it's a case agent. And you, you never, ever – I mean, I remember once a supervisor got very upset when he found out that an assistant U.S. attorney had begun a trial with a cooperating witness, which <laughs> I don't know that we were ever taught. Don't put on a cooperating witness first, somebody who people may remember – by definition means you've been involved in the crime and you've pled guilty to a crime and you've confessed the crime, but the reason you're testifying is you're trying to get leniency for yourself. Yeah, not a you good idea. You never put that, even if, the, even if they're compelling, even if they have a good overview of the case and can tell the narrative, you never do that. And so Bill Taylor is the opposite of that kind of witness. Yeah. Everyone is going to be attacked for being deep state or never Trump, mostly without evidence. But Bill Taylor both has compelling testimony also can give an overview of basically the whole timeline, or most of it. Third, he's a 50-year veteran yeah. of public service in this country, beginning as a cadet at West Point. And he was you know, not just some random guy who was a holdover. He was brought in out of retirement by Mike Pompeo himself. Yep. So people are going to be pretty hard-pressed after he testifies in a compelling way to attack him. And 
something that's very important in all of this, uh, which is why it's important that the committee got the chance to see people behind closed doors, is who's going to be compelling and who's not. Yeah, I agree. Each of these people are going to become, you know, mini household names. Yes. Once every television station in the country, at least the cable stations and some broadcast networks, show them. And they will be a story unto themselves and people will write profiles about them. And, you know, you don't just have the 100 senators who will be jurors. You basically have 300 million Americans who will judge. Does this person seem to be someone who cares about the country, who is telling the truth, who cares about doing the right thing? And I'm sure they made the determination that for all these reasons, Bill Taylor is that person. Yeah, I agree. And what I think is critical also is that he corroborates and sort of gives the information about the central question here. And so um, in his deposition, he talked about the fact that in no uncertain terms, Trump was demanding that the Ukrainian president Zelensky publicly announce an investigation of Burisma, the energy company that had Hunter Biden on its board, um, before the U.S. would unfreeze military aid and agree to the White House visit. And so, you know, it's really, really important because it goes to the core of the question as well. And so I think we're going to come out of Wednesday with the path forward framed. I mean, we've seen it already, but it's going to be done by Taylor. And also remember that Taylor sort of, his testimony gets Gordon Sondland to go in and change his testimony to be consistent with Taylor's because Sondland was clearly not forthright. So Taylor comes across as honest, as forthright, as a career diplomat, a military veteran, and I think it's going to be a powerful, powerful way to start. Also, what's interesting about the testimony this week is that we'll see the arguments that the Republicans are going to make, and we've seen some of them already, such as the crime was never completed, this argument of, well, the the money ended up going over, so there's no harm. There wasn't an in-person meeting, but they met at the UN. And then we have George Kent also. So George Kent is someone who's not as well-known in the reporting and in the you know, the TV network coverage, but he's important too. Yes, he's very important too. And he um, he testified that... And this is really, this is so important to me because we sort of see the piece of, okay, the aid, the military aid is being withheld to Ukraine, but Kent is the person behind the scenes who's dealing with this in real time, who's trying to figure out what's happening, how do I get that money out? And so he testified that this unexplained hold on aid set off a chaotic series of meetings and a campaign to persuade Trump to change his mind, to basically let the money go. And he testified there were frantic calls between senior State Department and White House officials. There were Senate Republicans who called, including Mitch McConnell. And basically, you know, he's saying no one understood who ordered the hold and why. And he also explained something else, which I think is really important, which is that Sondland was connected to Mulvaney, and that's why Sondland was involved in Ukraine policy. Because remember, he was the ambassador to the EU. So it's strange that Sondland would be involved in this. And Kent sort of explains, well, it comes from this personal connection. Right. Just to repeat why that part of the story, why that testimony is so important to this idea of the president extorting a foreign government is, in the ordinary course— there might be a national security reason or other diplomatic reason to withhold the aid. Here, you have the Congress approving the aid. You have the Congress wanting the aid to go to where it belongs, to the Ukraine. You have the president's own State Department and various individuals within the State Department saying the aid needs to go to Ukraine. You have people shaking their heads and scratching their heads wondering, why isn't the aid going where it's supposed to go, which gives the lie to the reason that it was in the national interest and lends support and and credence to the argument that there must have been some other reason why the aid was withheld, namely being withheld because there was something being extorted, and that is an announcement of an investigation of the Bidens. And what is amazing about this is that it is $400 million in money, 
and nobody knows. They're desperate, and it makes sense. They're desperate to find out why has that money not gone out the door. And so it makes sense that there would be chaotic calls going back and forth, that Congress would be involved. It also shows how unusual it was that this happened, that it sort of gets to this level very quickly. And then the final witness this week is the former ambassador to Ukraine, who was unceremoniously removed. And a lot of stories about why that happened, and there was a campaign against her, led by, among other people, Rudy Giuliani. Also stories about how Mike Pompeo is not well-respected in the way he might have been at the State Department now because he hasn't stood up for diplomats who have been attacked by the president, including among them Marie Ivanovich. She's very important, too. She's very important. And what comes out during the course of the depositions that have been happening over the past few weeks is that she was targeted starting in 2018, um, and that basically it was clear that Giuliani was not a fan of hers, that the president was not a fan of hers, that there were efforts to um, discredit her and have her removed, and that one of the most chilling parts to me is this conversation she has with Ambassador Sondland, where she's saying to him, like, you know, she and, and by the way, who tells her that she's being targeted by her own government? The Ukrainians, right? right? There's something startling about of like, who's more loyal to the work of a diplomat and to somebody who's sincerely trying to do their job? It turns out the Ukrainians basically say to her, like, look, you know, Giuliani, like all this stuff is moving. They're moving against you. Um, she goes to Sondland. She, she basically is trying to figure out, what do I do? And Sondland says, show your support for the president. I mean, essentially her takeaway is she's supposed to send a tweet praising like, Donald it's Trump. It's kind of crazy. It's crazy. It, it, you laughed, and it's the right reaction, because my first reaction was, what? Like, you're telling a career diplomat, the ambassador to Ukraine, that if she wants to keep her job, it's not that she has to do something. It's not that she's doing anything wrong. She just hasn't sufficiently praised the president and taken a loyalty oath. So those are the, the witnesses this week. We haven't heard an announcement yet as of the time of this recording. As some more witnesses, but some of them are clearly going to be important, and I guess they'll see how this week goes before announcing more witnesses. We should pause here to talk about something that maybe is worth explaining a little bit, both as a semantic rhetorical point and also as a, as a legal strategic point. And that is this whole idea of a quid pro quo and this whole idea of extortion and blackmail. Now, as a rhetorical matter, there are lots of folks who have been saying, and I guess they're directing their attention to people like you and me, <laughs> saying, nobody knows the Latin. Nobody knows what quid pro quo means. It doesn't sound nefarious. It is literally Latin for this for that. And there's compelling testimony from one of the witnesses uh, where a witness is asked, you understand that quid pro quo is literally this for that, and that's what was happening in this case. There's actually very compelling testimony from Bill Taylor, who maybe will repeat this live uh, in front of cameras on Wednesday, that quid pro quo literally means this for that, and that is absolutely what was happening in this case. But some people say, well, if you say quid pro quo, nobody knows what that means, doesn't sound bad, that the better terms to use are extortion and perhaps bribery. So we have a question from Euclid Zoo. Ian Shore, who asks, what is the difference between quid pro quo and extortion? Hashtag Ashpreet. And it's not so much that there's a difference between those two things, but an extortion is something that lay people, I think, understand. And a quid pro quo is a part of what an extortion is. So if I'm a member of the mob and I say, you want protection from the police, you got to give me a thousand bucks. And if you don't give me a week, if you don't give me a thousand bucks a week, we're going to smash up your store. So that's an extortion. I'm asking for something, money, in exchange for what do you get? You get protection. And it's a threat to do harm. Yes, and, and you were agreeing to do that because I've used the threat of force or actual force to get the thing that I want. So it, every extortion involves a quid pro quo, just like every bribery scheme involves a quid pro quo. So basically, an extortion is the use of force or the threat of force 
to obtain money, something else of value, or services from a person. And it could be it could be physical harm, financial harm, destruction of property, abuse of official power. So it the way most people think about it is force. You know, I'm going to break your store if you don't give me money, but it's more expansive than just well, that. Yes. What was actually difficult for us in public corruption trials was to explain to people that unlike the normal case you see on on the big screen when, where it involves the mafia, that it's not that kind of a threat. So with respect to a public official, it's the threat of official power or withholding of something that otherwise you would offer. So, right, and that's why it's important here. It's the threat of official power of withholding something like, for example, a White House meeting or military aid. Yeah, so when we charged and convicted you know, various public officials in New York, nobody was ever suggesting we're going to take a baseball bat to you. They were saying, if you don't give my son a no-show job, I'm not going to vote a particular way. And again, it wasn't explicit. But it was completely understandable from the circumstances. But this is a really important knew. point. And it's a really important point because it's it's so clear that this is about official authority and power, and this is a public corruption case. And, you know, the mob says, we're going to come with a bat to your windows, but Donald Trump doesn't need to say that. He exercises the power of the United States government, which is tremendous authority. And so that's why him saying, like, them withholding aid, them withhold refusing to do a meeting contingent upon these things in exchange becomes potential criminal activity. So one thing that gets confusing for folks, and I guess it's worth spending a minute on it, is, well, what's extortion and what's bribery? Just like there's a fine line between love and hate, there's a fine line often <laughs> between extortion and bribery. And it's something that prosecutors sometimes struggle with. So you've got, let's say, a business person who wants to get something done. Wants to get I hope you've enjoyed this sample of the Cafe Insider podcast. To listen to the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. To the many of you who have chosen to join the Insider community, thank you for supporting our work.